Hey there, friends. This is Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're back with another amazing, fun-filled episode of Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite species of animals and review them and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and of course, aesthetics. Christian and I are not zoological experts, but we put in a lot of hard work to make sure that we're doing really good, thorough research and bringing you guys really good information on this show. So we didn't make any of this stuff up. Did you make any of your stuff up? Well, I did source a dream. I had no. <laughs> Just, I mean, the whole species. Sources me. <laughs> I don't really have any announcements other than just that you look nice today. Oh, she's <laughs> lying. That's my announcement. But I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so I go first this week. Very good. So this week I am doing the winner of our social media species poll, which was up on Facebook as well as Twitter. I really need to figure out how to get that poll up on Instagram. I think there's a way to do it, but I haven't figured that out yet. I'm really bad at Instagram. I'm sorry, guys. Vote for this one by sharing no, the picture. See, I don't thing. know. Like, I don't have Instagram. It, I, it's I'm really lost on it. If anyone could teach me how to use Instagram like a proper Zoomer, <laughs> please reach out. <laughs> But so this was the winner of that poll, and this is the roseate spoonbill. This is a bird we've seen many times. We have seen this bird many times. This is one of those iconic Florida species, probably because of how unique and immediately identifiable it is. It's one of those that you look at it and you know what it is on site. It's constantly in Congress passing legislation having to do with cutlery. What are you talking it's about? A spoonbill. Okay. <laughs> that was difficult. Yeah, the scientific name of this species is Platalia. And I'm going to take a few passes at this species name. Okay, it, you can edit it down to one later. It could be any of the following. Oh, I see. Adjaja. Want to take another shot of that? Adjaja. <laughs> A Zsa maybe? I like that one. That uh -huh. one makes me think of like Zsa, Zsa Gabor, so it might be a Zsa, Zsa. Okay. Or if you're a Spanish speaker, ah ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> there was a scientist at some point who had a note taker, and that note taker mistook a laughter for the name for this bird. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's ah ha ha. Because it's J's, right? And yeah. in Spanish, that makes the the sound. Right. So, um, which is really funny because an older scientific name for this species used to be before they called it Platalia as the genus name. It mm. used to be Ahaha. Ah, ah. So it was Ahaha. Ah. The scientific name was Ahaha. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> Someone was tickled by these birds. It was me. <laughs> Uh, this species was originally submitted like forever ago by our friend of the Jungle Gym Queen. Thank you very much. Always giving us really good suggestions. And I'm getting my information from the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, as well as Smithsonian's National Zoo and the Cornell Labs website, allaboutbirds.org. Very good. So if you have never seen this bird before, the reason it is called the Spoonbill, their bill, which is long and it tapers in the middle and then flares back out at the ends to make a rounded spoon shape. Mm -hmm. And 
Another identifiable characteristic of this bird is that its feathers are bright pink. And it also has a bald head, like the top of its head is bald. But I'll go into that a little bit. I had forgotten that detail. Yeah. And it's progressive. So the older it gets, the balder it gets. Also, so it is one of these wading birds that you see a lot where they are basically just tall boys where they just have these long skinny legs. So think like an egret or a heron, like that sort of general like long bird shape. Mm-hmm. It's not like a duck or anything like that, you know. I'm hmm. trying to like describe, yeah, give a visual yeah. for people who've never seen this bird before. I'm realizing I've misremembered a lot of the details anatomically of these we birds. saw one literally like... Three weeks ago. I know, but it's always in the context of many, many other birds. <laughs> sure, I guess. Um, so these are native to Central and South America, as well as the Caribbean and coastal areas along the southeastern United States. So in the United States, that is particularly along southern Texas and the coastal areas of Louisiana and way, way, way down in South Florida. Hmm. So we live in North Florida, so you don't typically see them where we live, but way down in like mangroves and coastal marshes and stuff like that, that's where they like to live. Hmm. They belong to the taxonomic family Threskiornithidae. In that family, there are, first of all, there are five other species of spoonbills, and they are found all over the world. Like there's Asian species, there's African species, they're just everywhere. Mm. But this is the one that specifically lives in our sort of neck of the woods. Ibises belong to the same family. So outside of spoonbills, ibises are the next closest relative to spoonbills. Okay. And both ibises and spoonbills belong to the order Pelicaniformes, which we have visited with the shoebill. Ah. So I'm going to get started with my ratings for this animal. First up is effectiveness, which is physical adaptations that let an animal do a good job at the thing it's doing. I'm giving the spoonbill a 7 out of 10. So... Right off the bat, let's just get into that weird bill, the like sort of iconic defining characteristic of the bird. So the spoon-shaped bill is used for sweeping through shallow water because they wade in these sort of swampy mangrove areas where the water is not very deep, right? It's only going to come up to about like their knees or so. Mm-hmm. And they're not that tall. They're only like a few feet tall. So they're, they're not huge, like storks or anything like that. So the water is not very deep where they like to hang out. And they put their bill, their spoon-shaped bill, into the water, and they sweep it around. And they kind of like lightly dig in the mud, and it kicks up mud and mm-hmm. sand that's at the bottom of the water. So this stirs up a lot of sediment at the bottom and kicks up these small fish and invertebrates and crabs and shrimps and stuff like that. And then they just kind of like sift their bill through all that stuff. So they have their bill kind of like slightly opened, not all the way opened, but just kind of like slightly so that the water is just passing through the inside. Mm -hmm. And then the inside of that bill is really, really densely lined with these super sensitive nerve endings. Hmm. So when it feels that something that it's trying to eat has touched the inside of its bill, that's when it closes its bill and swallows. So that's how they feed. And something that's really interesting about that is that since they do spend so much time with the ends of their bills in the water, the end of their bill is totally submerged in the water. So their nostrils are up at the base of the bill near, like close to their eyes. So that they can still breathe while they're sifting through the water. Makes sense. Like a reverse 
snorkel or something. Yeah, kind of like that. So, because they're not putting their whole face or their whole head in the water, yeah. it's just the ends of the bills. So they're still breathing while they're doing that, which I think is very <laughs> a very smart adaptation. What's beneficial to them about this strategy is that the prey that they're after is really, really tiny. So they're not having to compete as much with the larger wading birds in those areas. Because in those areas, you're going to find a lot of stuff like cranes and egrets and herons and some of those things I mentioned that are going after the larger prey, like fish and snakes and frogs and lizards and stuff like that. They don't have to compete as much with that because they're after the tiny things. Yeah, for sure. And also what is cool about their bill is that when they hatch from an egg... Their bill is not spoon-shaped. Oh. It's straight. They grow into it. They do. It takes about a month. Hmm. But so it over the course of the first month of their life, the bill flattens and then gets that sort of flared shape. Huh. Yeah. I thought that was cute. I looked at pictures of like newly hatched spoonbills and they're cuter than I thought they were going to be. Does that let them break their eggshells easier? I think so, because, you know, in their adult form, that shape is very rounded and mm-hmm. blunt. And I know that birds have to peck through the shell of the egg to get out. So I would imagine that that blunt, rounded shape would do a bad job <laughs> of helping them sure. hatch. So, yeah, that's what I had on their bill, which is a pretty cool little tool. <laughs> a little rhyme there for you. Just a little little baby one. So the next thing I want to talk about is their bright pink feathers. And this isn't necessarily an adaptation. It's just a thing that happened. (laughs) Um, Their feathers are this bright pink. In some areas, they're like a white, like a pale white. But then like along the edges of their wings, they're like a deep magenta, even a red. And their feathers are pink for the same reason that flamingo feathers are pink. If you're not familiar with flamingo feathers, the reason that they are pink is that their diet is very high in shrimp. And shrimp eat algae. So the algae is really high in these pigments called carotenoids. This is the same type of chemical that gives foods like carrots and squash their color, gives them that like yellow, orange, and red color. When you see this color in plants, it's because of carotenoid pigments. Carotenoid, like the first part, looks like carrot. That's how you can kind of remember it, right? (laughs) Like it's a little built-in mnemonic that it's what gives carrots their color. But um, I wanted to take a quick little detour to talk about carotenoids because I had heard this so often, you know, that like, oh, yeah, the things that the flamingo eat has pigments in it. But then I was like, but why, though? So I was really interested in that. So I took a little bit of a deep dive. So plant cells, like the ones that you find in the algae that the shrimp eat, um, have the pigment chlorophyll in them. And chlorophyll absorbs light in the lower blue wavelengths really, really well. Mm -hmm. And also in the higher red wavelengths really, really well. And then reflects most of those green to yellow lights that Um, gives them the green color because that's the light that the chlorophyll is not absorbing. It's being reflected. That's the light that reaches your eyes. That's why a chlorophyll looks green. Now, carotenoids reflect a little bit wider of the range up into like the blue and green spectrum. 
So they are letting the plant absorb a wider range of wavelengths of light. So they're helping the plant bring in more light for photosynthesis. And another thing that it's doing is it's helping dissipate heat energy from the light so that the plant cells don't overheat. Mm. Yeah, so carotenoid is really good for plant cells. It's also healthy for you to eat. Like if you eat foods that are high in carotenoids, it can be really good for you. But so that's the reason that the carotenoid pigment gives this like yellow and red range colored. So when the bird eats the shrimp that has eaten the algae, the carotenoids get stored in the keratin of the bird's feathers, mm. which keratin being the same material that our hair and nails are made of, right. um, same material that bird feathers are made of. And so carotenoid gets stored in that keratin and that acts as a red dye. So that red dye applied to white feathers gives you pink. Mm. A little uh, biology detour that I took. So one thing, I didn't really give them very many effectiveness points for this because it doesn't really seem like an adaptation that gives them any sort of advantage at all. It's just a side effect of their diet. It doesn't seem like it's something that like was selected for. Yeah. It just happened over time. I would even go so far as to say that it might even be a hindrance to them, right? Because bright pink in a swamp, you're going to stand out. Sure. I mean, although I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was indirectly selected for in that it's a good indicator of health. Like, oh, like nutrition. Yeah, like, like oh, this, this bird eats. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This You talked about this with the blue-footed booby, right? Yeah. How, like, the blue or the feet, that meant they were eating more? Yep. It could be that, like, more brightly colored birds, that's more, it's more obvious that they've been eating particularly well. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe. I think you're right about that. So, yeah, I feel like that bright pink color kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, um, especially in a swamp where there is nothing else that is going to be that kind of color. But you do see this these bright pink feathers in other birds that have a similar diet that live in this area. So like ibises, like mm. the scarlet ibises will have this color. Flamingos that live in this area will have this color. Um, I have to say, I've never, ever, ever seen a wild flamingo. I've never seen them either. And I've lived in Florida almost my whole life. Yeah. And the reason for that is that they do not live around here. They live way down south. Okay. Yeah. They don't live in the part of Florida where we live, but they live down there. It's just down in the swamps. But then they're like the poster child of the state. They are. <laughs> yeah. One um, of, I should say. Yeah, it's kind of like one of the things that you see on all the postcards is flamingos. I think that's the lottery's fault, maybe. <laughs> but what's funny is that spoonbills have such like have some very similar characteristics to flamingos, but mm. they're not related. Makes sense. Like not at all. <laughs> I mean, just just in the pigment and how it gets there, I in, guess. Like general appearance, you know, because it's like a tall wading uh -huh. bird that has pink feathers. Um, but that's about where the similarities end. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to move on to ingenuity, which is for us behavioral adaptations that let an animal do a good job at its stuff. So I give the spoonbill a six out of 10. I couldn't find a lot for the spoonbill. I gave them some ingenuity points for the fact that when they are sifting through the water, they do this back and forth motion, like a metal detector. Yeah. Like you might use a metal detector in, in like these back and forth sweeping motions to collect a lot of prey in their bills. So I thought that was pretty good of them to sure. have figured that out. Shrimp detector. Exactly. <laughs> and the other thing I gave them ingenuity points for is that they are social and they tend to stick together in these really large groups. So you'll see them in these big flocks. Like when we see them at the Jacksonville Zoo, 
They have a bunch of them that you'll always see them all kind of hanging out as one big like conglomerate almost. Mm. Their mating habits are serial monogamy. So they will mate monogamously, but only for that year. Yeah. Right. So they'll like make a nest with a partner, stick with that partner. But then the next year in the next breeding season, they'll move on to another partner. Yeah. So so kind of implying they have one breeding season a year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I thought this was actually really, really cute. Their courtship ritual with each other is pretty great. It involves the males bringing sticks back to the females to make their nests Aww. with. Now, I was really hoping <laughs> that you were going to say spooning. <laughs> I don't so, know how that would be accomplished by birds, but I'm trying to think of it and like the <laughs> angles are all wrong. Yeah. I was just hoping for the pun. <laughs> oh well. No, but some other things that they do is they dance. Oh. They like flap their wings at each other to like make these big impressive dancing displays. Mm-hmm. And this is my favorite one, and this is probably my favorite thing that I learned this entire time. Beak clacking. Oh, uh- <laughs> They clack their beaks together. It's great. It's Eskimo kisses, but with beaks. Like they just clack both of their closed beaks against each other. Open beaks. Oh, so it's, ah, I found my pun. Okay, let's hear it. This is like playing spoons. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it was in there somewhere. That's not really a pun. That's just a a play on words. Observation, I suppose. A parallel. I'm very talented. (laughs) You're very clever and funny. (laughs) Is this what you wanted? Yep. (laughs) So, yeah, um, look up videos of Spoonbill's beak clacking and it will warm your heart. It's my favorite thing ever. Actually, I think maybe, what if this is what that one Spoonbill was doing to my shoe? Do you remember that? Slightly. Oh, wait, you weren't there, were you? So I was at the zoo with Isaac. (laughs) (laughs) And our zoo has these two aviaries. It's one of those things where you go in and it's like roped off from Mm -hmm. the rest of the zoo. And there are just birds everywhere. They're not like in in an enclosure or anything. You're just meant to walk through and the birds are flying free around you. And so this is where they have a bunch of spoonbills. And they're just roaming the area. You know, they have like a pond that they wade in and stuff. And I'm walking around the loop and this one spoonbill comes up to me and starts like nibbling on my shoe (laughs) with his little beak. He's like chattering his beak like all over my shoe. And like I kind of took a few steps away to try to like get out of his zone and he followed me and kept doing (laughs) it. It was really cute. I loved it. I have a video of it. I'll post it when this episode goes up. Okay. But yeah, it's really great. Maybe that's what he was doing. I wonder if he was flirting with my shoe. Maybe you stepped in some shrimp. I think he was hoping that I had, but I had not, I promise. (laughs) Uh, And oh, and the last thing I wanted to say about their ingenuity is that both parents help incubate the egg. I just like that. I like egalitarian parenting. I know that's very anthropocentric, but I just like it. Yeah. (laughs) So finally, this brings us to aesthetics for the roseate spoonbill. Please don't at me. I give it a five out of ten. Please don't unsubscribe from this show. I give it a 5 out of 10. I'm sorry. I don't think it's very cute. More of a fork person, huh? 
Wow. They have a bald, wrinkly head, uh-huh. and I don't care for that. They have small, beady eyes that are like dark red and a little bit demonic looking. <laughs> um, this, like, just a goofy looking bill. So I think it looks like a drawing of a flamingo uh-huh. by a person who hasn't seen a flamingo in about 20 years. And only has like a vague concept <laughs> to go off of. Like this is this is a bird that I am not in a headspace to take seriously. This is not a bird that I'm able to look at and be like, yes, what majesty? You know, like this is like a joke bird. No, I, I'm sorry. I don't think it's very cute. Yep pet one of these birds i would pet them yes i would pet them because now i've been nibbled on by their beaks and i know that it does not hurt that was your shoe though no he got some of my ankle and my leg like he got a little bit of of ankle action in there but (laughs) it didn't hurt at all it was very gentle and beaks not sharp or anything it was fine so miscellaneous information for the roseate spoonbill so their iucn listing status is least concern however in florida they are a state designated threatened status okay unfortunately they're those beautiful pink feathers that they have made them kind of a prime target for hunters when colonists moved into the florida area in like the 1800s and such i guess those aren't colonists but when hunters and people like that started to come into these areas where they found the spoonbills in the 1800s then of course beautiful bright pink feathers oh my gosh gotta have them they uh would make fans like you know like ladies fans out of those feathers and they would also make hats out of the feathers the the southern bell type thing yeah 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 like all that stuff i do declare Yeah, that. Okay. (laughs) You got any more? (laughs) You're sassy this episode. (laughs) So this hunting them for their feathers really kind of brought them to the brink of extinction. By the 1930s, they were down to between 30 and 40 breeding pairs. So they were almost completely gone, and they actually had been completely obliterated from some areas. Wow. Like In some areas, they were extinct. Mm-hmm. So thankfully, once the practice of hunting spoonbills was made illegal, their populations were able to recover slowly over time. They don't have very many babies at once, and they only have one breeding season per year. So it takes a while for them to build numbers up. But over time, they have been able to kind of rebuild. They've kind of bounced back. Not all the way, but they've done a pretty good job of recovering. So these days, their biggest threat is actually habitat loss. Mm -hmm. And as their nesting colonies are being edged into areas where they haven't historically been, those areas overlap with predators that they're more vulnerable to, like gators and large snakes. Something I forgot to mention in the effectiveness area was that they don't really have very many defenses from predators. You know, like I mentioned, their beak is not very strong or sharp, so they don't really have that to fight back with they're not very like bulky or buff or anything like that being a bird you know they're kind of more built for Mm -hmm. flight so they're a little more lightweight so they're not good at fighting off predators or anything they've got flight you know they can just fly away if they need to but um you know like a gator uh by the time you see it it's already got your leg in its mouth so yeah and unfortunately they live where gators are (laughs) so not super well uh equipped to fight off predators but overall it's a good bird yeah i like this bird yeah 
I feel like I really bonded with it with the one that was making out with my shoe at the zoo. I felt like I developed a really intense bond with this bird. Well, but then you called it ugly. Man, I gotta <laughs> live in my truth. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't want to. I don't think it's very cute. You need to see it. I think I gave this I think I gave the shoe bill like a four out of ten. And this is just like one point more than that. Well, thank you, babe. I enjoyed that. Thanks. I'm glad you did. Mm. This podcast is made possible by our supporters on Patreon. And for this week, I would like to thank our patrons, Megan Clark, Vikram Baliga, Ashley Tucker, Jacob Jones, the Jungle Gym Queen, Brianna Feinberg, and Christina Sanders. Thanks, y'all. All right. So the species I bring this week is Machi's Tree Kangaroo. I love it already. Scientific name, Dendrologus Machi. Machi? Yes. Three kangaroos were submitted to us in general by Emily Grove via email. Thanks, Emily. I chose this particular species of tree kangaroo in my typical manner of completely arbitrarily. (laughs) At random. (laughs) I looked for Google image results and Uh picked one that I liked, and it turned out to be this one. Okay. Because prior to this, I didn't really know a whole lot about them. Oh, yeah. I think that when I suggested to you that you should do the tree kangaroo this episode, I think you thought I was kidding. No, I, <laughs> I, I was assuming it was going to be one of those things like, I bet it's neither a tree or a kangaroo. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is one of those things. Which one? <laughs> so I'm getting my information from Woodland Park Zoo, which is in Seattle, Washington, and they can be found at the very descriptive URL, zoo.org. That's my favorite thing ever. <laughs> I'm guessing they were the first zoo <laughs> to get a website. <laughs> Maybe they just like had a bidding war over who was going to get zoo.org. That's know, so man. bold. <laughs> Good for her. Basic info. Uh, these guys are 37 to 70 inches in height or 94 to 179 centimeters. I'm sure that includes their tail. And they weigh around 15 to 20 pounds or 7 to 9 kilograms. That's not very heavy for how big you described it. Yeah, a lot of that is tail. Okay. Okay. (laughs) That makes sense. Uh, They live only on the Huon Peninsula of northeastern Papua New Guinea. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So this is not in Australia. No. You'll find these. For those that maybe aren't familiar, that is in the southwestern Pacific Ocean, north of Australia and east of Indonesia. Very good. Yeah. And they live in cloud forests. What is a cloud forest? This area is basically a rainforest, but at such an elevation that it's almost always covered in fog or just clouds, really, because of just how high they are in elevation. That sounds really beautiful. Yeah. It's it's really nice to look at. Every close-up I've seen of it, I would describe as... Moist. Would you? (laughs) Damp. Yeah. Great. Now that's on the podcast. Uh, I mentioned elevations. They are found between 4,000 feet and 11,000 feet, or 1,000 meters and 3,500 meters. And they are arboreal. They live in trees. So they're just trying to get as high up as they possibly can. (laughs) They're like, all right, we're already way up on this mountain, except now let's actually climb to the top of the tree. Yeah. So this actually makes it very difficult to study them in the wild. I ran into this exact problem last (laughs) week with my animal. Yeah. (laughs) They belong to the taxonomic family Macropodidae. Okay. These are the macropods. Yes. So their other relatives are kangaroos, wallabies, and quokkas. Yay, quokkas. So that family might be familiar from that episode. Yes. So yes, they are kangaroos, or at least in that family. 
Uh, no bamboozle this time. <laughs> Gonna dig right into it, starting with effectiveness. I'll give them a 7 out of 10. That's pretty good. Yeah. I want to talk about their lifespan first. So in captivity, their lifespan is 20 years. And again, I mentioned they are difficult to study in the wild. So we don't know what their lifespan in the wild is for sure, but it's thought to be between 15 and 20 years. Sure, that's based on just the tendency of mammals of that size. Their lifespan differs between wild and captivity. And next, I want to talk about the feature that many marsupials are known for, their pouch. It has pockets. Yeah, so it's got a pouch to carry and nurse its young. So like many marsupials, they have a very short gestation period, but then the joey will spend its time in the pouch developing further. So with this tree kangaroo, the gestation period is only 44 days, and the joey is born the size of a kidney bean. Oh, it's just a little bean. <laughs> and crawls into the pouch to nurse. Oh. Yeah. That's too precious. So the joey stays in that pouch for seven months, and during that time, the mother cleans the pouch and grooms the joey. And the joey leaves the pouch, but returns to the pouch to nurse after that, and that's known as the in and out phase. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and that lasts for another three months. Listen, we've all had that in and out phase where you're transitioning <laughs> from living with your mom. Yeah. Uh, the Joey is completely out of the pouch at 10 months old and weaned at 13 months old. And eventually it will leave the mother to establish its own home range when it's able to care for itself, which happens around 18 months old. And finally, for effectiveness, tree climbing. So this is their thing. And they're built pretty well for it. They even put it in the name. Yes. <laughs> they are known for it. They have long claws, and they have rough padded feet. Are they long claws on the front feet or the back feet? I think both. Okay. Both like both. Because I'm imagining the feet of a ground kangaroo, I right. suppose. And that doesn't seem... Mm, it's significantly longer, and their digits are also built, built differently. Right, because those yeah. long feet don't seem uh, built for climbing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I think these look closer to quokkas than they do kangaroos. Oh, all right. They have really long tails, and those are for balance. Uh, they are not prehensile. Oh, really? Oh, I thought they were. No. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. And they can jump from heights of 60 feet or 18 meters without hurting themselves. So they jump down. No that, fall that damage. Distance. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing it's a combination of their overall weight. I remember now that they're not very heavy. Yeah, yeah. Because eventually when you go down in size and weight, you'll reach the point where it doesn't matter what height it is, it's not going to take any damage. Well, I mean, that's what when we're talking about like Ants. spiders yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. But this is a this whole... Is, this is the middle ground. This is a whole kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're really good at climbing trees. Very good. I would hope that they were. <laughs> what if it was an, iro an ironic name? <laughs> you know how we're always naming animals based on what they are really bad at doing. Doing <laughs> the running fish. Well, I don't know. I feel like someone was like two steps away from naming the blobfish, like, does really good at surface level <laughs> atmosphere fish. <laughs> just. Just great, really, really looks totally normal at surface level. I want more sarcastic common names for animals. <laughs> like chameleon, like super easy to find. <laughs> Horseshoe crab is oh, definitely a crab. Oh, jeez. All right. So moving on. 
to ingenuity similar to yours didn't find a whole lot that would fit in this category gonna give it a six out of ten because i I don't know that seems average for a mammal of this sort i guess yeah you know i want to talk a little little bit about their social behavior so they are solitary really outside of those mother offspring bonds interesting yeah i guess when you're arboreal maybe it's a little bit more difficult to stick together in large groups Maybe. But outside of mating, you know, they, they all have their own range. And then typically a male's range will overlap with several females' nice. ranges. King. Um, <laughs> so it is a bit of a... Like well, a harem situation? No, it is specifically not a harem situation. <laughs> I've been called out. <laughs> well, I, see, I say that because my source said that specifically polygynous yeah that's the one with like a man that has multiple wives yes but it's not like in this case the male is hoarding all the females it's just he will probably mate with several females and probably so will other males oh okay okay so he's not necessarily like guarding them right right okay so that's that's all i had for ingenuity Uh, And then aesthetics, probably not surprising. 10 out of 10. They're very cute. Oh, they're beautiful. They have this beautiful brown, blonde, and then pretty much a gradient between those two colors. Mm, So (laughs) Uh, good. And they have a cute face and ears. They're fuzzy. And also, they they are chonk. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hearing a lot of similarities between why you think the tree kangaroo is cute and why you think I am cute. (laughs) No. Uh, oh, and you did see that one picture of the tree kangaroo with a little baby tree kangaroo, the joey, like with its head yeah. poking out of the pouch. Mm-hmm. That's great. So this species was featured in National Geographic's photo art by Joel Sartori. That's one of the pictures is uh, a female tree kangaroo with its joey poking its head out. And they're both looking at the camera like dead on. So good. It's so good. Yeah. You get a real appreciation for how absolutely adorable they are. They are. It's a little miscellaneous information. Their conservation status is endangered per IUCN in 2014. The wild population was thought to be less than 2,500 individuals. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, based on what you said earlier, it sounds like they live in a pretty small area. Yeah. Specifically this peninsula of Papua New Guinea. There are other tree kangaroos in that area, but this one lives in this particular area. Okay. However, the Woodland Park Zoo, one of the things they have is a conservation program. Yay! Yeah. So, in addition to having these animals at their zoo in Seattle, they also have a program known as the Tree Kangaroo Conservation Program. So, it's based out of the zoo, but they also have basically a group of people working out there where they live in Papua New Guinea. This is like field work. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. There's lots of videos and stuff, and they even have a, a, a yearly pamphlet that you can read with lots of details on what they're doing. But some of the things they're doing is they're using critter cams and tracking collars to learn more about them. That, that's the best way for them to see what they're doing in the wild, because they're usually really, really high up in trees. <laughs> wonder what kind of secrets they're hiding up there. So some of the things they're collecting is GPS data. So like how far is their range? When are they coming down from trees? What do they need to come down for? I don't I know. I, what, what do they eat? That was my next point in the miscellaneous info. Oh. I'll get there. So yeah, th- their their goal is to kind of learn about these animals, but also to work with the locals to kind of lead conservation efforts at that level. Something they said in one of the videos I was watching kind of resonated with me. 
So one of their goals is to empower the locals to be conservation stewards of their own land and waterways. Yeah. Yeah. So last week when I talked about, you know, the barriers that there are to researching in the Solomon Islands Mm -hmm. is, you know, that it's difficult for a scientist to come in who's not familiar with the area. It's just very intrusive, right, for somebody to come in from a completely different country. They don't speak your language. They don't look like you. They don't have anything in common with you. And they're trying to come in, stomp through your yards and, you know, take pictures of stuff and gather samples and bring them back to their labs. And then they just kind of peace out. And then you never see them again. And you never see any results from that work. And then you're like, well, why did I just, you know, the people that live there could be like, they end up being taken advantage of. Sure. Um, and then even sometimes, like, the researchers won't even acknowledge the support that they get from the people that live there. Yeah. They'll just be like, oh, thanks for showing us around. Whereas, like, they, they're the ones that live there. Yeah. Like, this is their, sure. like, area. Sure. So this program, I would say, is the complete opposite of that. Right. So I'm, that's what I'm, like, I'm saying is that, like, a lot of field research programs now have recognized that like we should not do that anymore Sure, this particular group in papua new guinea has people that have pretty much dedicated their adult lives to working there and doing it and they also have a team that's you know based on the brochure i was seeing i was seeing was at least 75 percent people that are native to that area and even the person that did the video who was initially doing it in english and is obviously american at one point in the video was speaking to the other people in the area in a native language. So it was very interesting. Yeah. So one of the things they were doing is part of this conservation effort is working with the people that make coffee beans in the area. Okay. I didn't realize that coffee was a major thing that they Uh did there. I believe this is just smack dab in the coffee belt. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the zoo's website, they refer to this as conservation coffee. I love that. So the program was kind of working hand, hand in hand with local coffee growers to one kind of bolster their economy, but also bringing this very unique coffee bean to the to the U.S. to sell. Now, I did my best to try and find some. Uh, it seems like it hasn't been advertised for about two years. I'm thinking it's kind of a rare thing. It's not an always available type thing. Sure. So maybe it's a get it when it's available type deal, but maybe keep an eye out to yeah. our listeners. Supposedly, when it's available, you can get it at the gift shop at the zoo. I'm sure they would mail us some if we bought it. Well, the thing is, I I don't think they have any right now. That program, by the way, money from those sales goes towards this conservation program in general. That's so good. Yeah. So I mentioned I would talk about what they eat. In the wild, they eat leaves, ferns, moss, tree bark, and flowers, such as orchids. Ooh, that's an interesting little snack. I bet it's a tasty snack for them. It's a treat. (laughs) In captivity, they eat romaine lettuce, Swiss chard, bok choy, spinach, celery, carrots, corn cob, yams, bananas, fiber biscuits, parsley, dandelion, collards, green beans, and hard-boiled eggs. Regular salad lover. Yeah, that sounds like a cob salad right there. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the Machi's tree kangaroo. I love this tree kangaroo. They're so beautiful, too. I like them. Oh my gosh, they're so pretty. I love their noses. They have kind of like a round nose, don't they? It's like a blunt, sort of rounded shape. Yeah, nose. that's that's why I think they look close. They look more like quokkas to me than kangaroos. Do they have the smiley face like a quokka? I think so. It kind of looks like that. Oh. Oh, I didn't read anything about uh, negative 
parenting projectiles. <laughs> <laughs> they don't yeet their babies? Nah. <laughs> oh, well, I guess that kind of an explanation of that is uh, New Guinea doesn't have very many predators. Certainly no large mammal predators. Okay. Probably the only thing that these guys would have to worry about are large uh, raptors. Yeah, but they're big enough, right? That they're not exactly easy pickings. Maybe well, a young, a young one. Yeah, but they they basically depend on being inaccessible to predators. Because <laughs> because looking at them, I don't think they have anything else. If that fails them, I mean, you mentioned that they have sharp claws. Yeah, I suppose, but they could probably fight a raptor if they uh, wanted to. Maybe. Listen, if push comes to shove. Okay, but if. Push comes a shove, one of them can fly when, when, when they got pushed out of a tree. <laughs> the other one doesn't take fall damage. So, honestly, draw. Well, thank you so much to everybody who has been listening and reviewing us and sharing a, sharing the show with people that you think would like it and spreading the word. Um, it really makes our day when we hear y'all's good feedback about the show that we work really hard on. So thank you for doing that so that we feel motivated to keep making it for y'all every single week. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search the title of the show and you'll get there. If you have an animal species that you want to hear us review on this show, get those to us either over social media, that's fine, or also my email address, which is ellen at justthezooofus.com. And finally, thank you, Louis Zong, for letting us use your song Adventuring off of the album B-Sides. Yeah, thank you. It rules. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs>